Hello and welcome to Joko Yo. Josiah Martin, Governor Josiah Martin, by most accounts, does not seem to have been a bad guy. I mean, complicated, sure, cringy, okay, but history, especially American and North Carolina history, has put him forth as a villain, and I'm not so sure he completely deserves it. I mean, not completely, anyway. He certainly benefited from nepotism and grew up in luxury, so he was born with connections and money, and there's no doubt that his family got both as a result, directly or indirectly, through the forced labor of enslaved people in the Caribbean island of Antigua. So, okay, sort of a bad guy. Okay, a lot of a bad guy. He and his six brothers received their training through tutors, prep schools, universities, and the royal court itself. His brother Samuel was a member of parliament, was the treasurer of the mother of King George III himself, and tried to guide Josiah's path through government. Josiah, though, seemed to want, at least at first, to set his own destiny, enrolling in the army at an early age despite his family's objections. But the army seemed to not be for him. So he, like the proverbial prodigal son, went back to his father and brother, seeking a position in one of imperial or provincial governments that England had no shortage of. Bouncing around a bit, luck, maybe, hit. The royal governor of the colony of New York had died. Our governor of North Carolina, William Tryon, was deeply unpopular due partially to how he managed the regulator conflict. The people of North Carolina didn't like him, but the feeling was absolutely mutual. Tryon needed to go, and the royal government thought so too. And Samuel's efforts to get little brother Josiah named governor of North Carolina. North Carolina was in absolute turmoil in 1770 when he was named. It had not only just been through a class war. The regular conflict was also a war between East and West, rich and poor, and the biggest outright rebellion against a royal governor that the colonies had ever seen. North Carolina was an absolute powder keg waiting to explode, and Josiah was just named governor of that powder keg at the ripe old mature age of 33 years old. 33. Oh, and North Carolina and South Carolina were on the verge of war between the two of them over their boundary line. And by all accounts, Josiah Martin was a friendly, intelligent, hard-working guy who, who loved to solve problems. He was a believer in the ability of the law to help people do so. But being named governor of this colony? It didn't seem like Martin was too excited about it. Sure, I mean, it paid pretty well, but dang. It took him a long time to accept the position. I don't blame him. I would have a hard time with it, too but there didn't seem to be any other prospects. But when he came, he tried to do the job, 
Not only did he have the boundary dispute and effects of the regulator war, but a lot of landowners were not and had never been paying their taxes either. And a lot of sheriffs were not even attempting to collect them. The Colonial Assembly and Tryon had never settled the matter of who was responsible for naming judges or personnel. Is it the people from the colonies? Is it the crown? Martin checked the law. He liked solving problems. So he took over. It was his job, but he's going to do it. The Colonial Assembly did not take that well. He told the sheriffs that every landowner was to pay taxes like everyone else. And it was the sheriff's responsibility to collect. And if they did not collect, they would have to pay those taxes out of their own pockets. The law said so. Josiah Martin liked solving problems. The sheriffs were not excited by his solution. Martin wanted Englishmen that owned North Carolina property without living here to pay their taxes. But those English lords played politics and dodged them again. While Mr. Martin is governor, and Martin was told not to collect by the crown itself. The court issue of who named judges could not be resolved, so judges stopped being seated, leaving North Carolina without an effectual judicial system. And when the trouble began in Massachusetts, and there was a call for a meeting for representatives from all the colonies, and the Colonial Assembly requested that Martin call for the Assembly to convene to select and send those representatives was denied, well... Sheriffs didn't know if they were to collect taxes or not. Judges were now without a judicial system. It looked like the British government had effectually abandoned the colony. I mean, there was no government happening. And Josiah Martin had been placed in this position. And when the people of the colony asked to convene to, you know, actually govern, Martin denied them saying it was a dangerous assembly, and our own John Hinton agreed with him. One of the issues was money, of course. Britain was still trying to recover economic losses from 15 years before. And if you want to ask how does the world's largest and most powerful economy take 15 years to recover from a war, uh, ask yourself how long it took us to recover from Vietnam. And the economic crisis... Those that had the power to do so insulated themselves as much as possible from losing money and power, even if it was at the expense of other people. Again, look at us if you want to ask how that can happen. So it wasn't completely that Britain was being hostile. Can't be hostile if you're not even present. Unless you are present in Massachusetts and are appearing to be hostile to its residents as the British military seemed to be. To add to North Carolina's issues, the regulator conflict left deep wounds which had not healed and probably could not be healed, especially in battleground areas like frontier-looking and newly created Wake County. Governor Martin was 33 years old. To abuse the line from Vanilla Ice... There was certainly a problem, and no, he couldn't solve it. Who could? And for a man who acted as sheriff, 
was a judge and was a leader in the battleground of Wake County, John Hinton and his family was affected more than nearly any other person in North Carolina, which is mainly why he was so ready and willing to participate. These guys requesting an assembly were actually offering something resembling a government. But Governor Martin was not hostile. Like what was happening in Massachusetts, he was just ineffectual. When he denied the desire of the Colonial Assembly to meet, well, they did it anyway. And Newburn, right under his nose, and he couldn't do a thing to stop it. At first, they were going to meet up the Noose River at Smithfield, partially because they were at first afraid that Martin would send troops against them, and partially to send a message. It was at Smithfield that Martin's predecessor, Tryon, began his march to put down the regulators, where the regulator war in some ways began. And it would have been poetic that it would be the same place that the pushback began, but they decided to meet in the capital of New Bern. be even more poetic, effectively daring Martin to do something. Instead of facing them, he fled. A man not matched for the situation or the time. John Hinton did not attend that meeting, but he did attend the second. One, when he learned of not just the actions of the First Provincial Congress, but the inaction of Governor Martin. John Hinton met in New Bern for the Second Provincial Council, beginning in 3rd of April, 1775, with the purpose of establishing what he saw as a long-needed government, and he felt able and singularly equipped to provide it. He was experienced and motivated. This assembly boycotted British goods. Just after the meeting ended, news reached North Carolina that Massachusetts militiamen shot at British troops at Lexington and Concord. And since North Carolina delegates had cast their lots with Massachusetts assemblymen, it was now on. And these assemblymen had recently found out that Martin had been, like trying before him, trying to organize another army to put down and attack the council. This army was made up of descendants of Scottish Highlanders who, sure, they hated the British, but they were also from western North Carolina who had been cheated and double-crossed by Easterners for years and who made it the new provincial council. This loyalist army, Martin hoped, would be big enough to push this rebellion down, but when they assembled up the Cape Fear at the town of Cross Creek in February of 1775, there were only 1,500 people. They marched to put them down anyway and tried to grow their army of loyalists. Martin had moved his headquarters from New Bern to Fort Johnston in modern-day Southport, on the Cape Fear, surrounded by loyalists. And on the 24th of April, he and the British Empire's popularity was so damaged that people set fire to Fort Johnson and he evacuated his family. He was now 38 years old. Again, the only government, the only visible colonial government was being formed by these representatives. And at this point, all they had really done was pick people to send to Philadelphia and to boycott British goods. 
Any government that was visible was being done by county leaders, such as John Hinton. There was no real outside organization, no real outside help. There were county committees of safety, but that was about it, and they knew it. Several committees of safety drafted resolves stating their position on the relationship between the colonists and the crown. The one drafted by the Mecklenburg County Committee of Safety went so far as to say that, quote, all laws derived from the authority of the king or parliament are annulled and vacated, and only the government of the Continental Congress is the true government in any of the colonies, end quote. Those are now called the Mecklenburg Resolves, and some like to claim that this was the first Declaration of Independence, but that's inaccurate, even though it is worthy of being one of two dates on the North Carolina flag. Governor Martin got a copy, as did the Continental Congress meeting in Philadelphia. Martin sent a copy to England to tell the Crown that the colonists were setting up a system of rules and regulations subversive of His Majesty's government and requested a supply of arms and ammunition, presumably, to bring order to the colony. Two months later in July, North Carolina colonists found out that Martin was instigating a plan to arm enslaved people, again presumably in hopes that they would rebel against the rebels. In retaliation, those rebels, colonists, attacked the fort. For slave owners like John Ashley, or John Ash, the leader of this group, this was the crossing of a line and marked the first violence of the revolution in North Carolina. I guess for John Ash, arming slaves to rebel was the last straw. And this is where we take a break in the Hinton saga, because you see, Hinton and his entire family were themselves owners of enslaved people. I'm not going to gloss over that issue or try to say that the Hinton family were different from other slaveholders or were secret abolitionists. They were not. And that takes us to the very next episode. And thanks for listening. Until next time, y'all be good.